Hey, good morning, family. Good morning. Good to see you guys. How you doing? You guys doing good? Me too. I got a little bit of a cold, so uh, my ears are plugged up, so if, uh, I may be talking louder than normal, all right, because I can't hear anything. Uh, but uh, we are in a series called uh, in Jonah, the book of Jonah, and it's called God's Radical Love for the Lost. Michael is actually going to read the first chapter of Jonah for us this morning, and then I'm going to pray for us. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had got down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. So he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon us. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Let's pray, family. Oh, God, we love you. Jesus, we just got singing that you are, you are amazing. You're the one true God, and we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice, for your grace that you have shown us. And I pray and I ask, God, that right now we would be so aware of your presence here with us. Lord, help us be aware of you. Every breath that we take is a gift of grace. All the thoughts and synapses are firing in our brain. Lord, that's all gift of you. Help us be aware of 
of you right here, right now among us. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today and that you would shape us into your image and into your likeness through the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. December 16th is an important date in American history. On that evening, December 16th, 1773, protesters illegally boarded three ships that were owned by the British Empire, and they committed a massive act of vandalism. They dumped 29 tons of tea leaves into the Boston Harbor in an event that we now call the Boston Tea Party. They were protesting a law by British Parliament, and their demands were no taxation without representation for the American colonies. That was the initial act of what we know as the American Revolution. Our country, you see, was founded on protesting authorities. Our country, that's where it's based. Instead of engaging the colonists to understand why they were protesting, the British Empire chose to flex their authority and escalate the situation with heavy taxes and a show of force, and their hope was they would quickly stomp that out. And this is a great picture, a great illustration from our own history of how we typically respond to protesting today, whether it's on a societal level or in our own homes, with our spouses, with our children. This is typically how we respond when someone disagrees with our fundamental principles and they're vocal about that. We see them as threats to our authority, to our wisdom, our knowledge, and we want to stomp that out as quick as we can and move on with life. You know that there's some people, they actually believe that that is how God treats us when we disagree with him. That God treats us the same way that the British treated the American colonists. They see God as this insecure tyrant and meets any protest to his wisdom or authority with brute force. But what we're going to see in this text today is that God deals with us in a radically different way. This morning, we're going to look and see what happens when we protest God and God's calling on our life. And so first of all, we need to understand what is God's calling on the life of all believers? We talked a little bit about that last week. But the calling is that we are called to take salvation to the lost. Look with me in the text, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amatti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. The calling of God, if you notice, it's pretty straightforward. Not a lot of ambiguity going on here. God tells Jonah to get up, go from his home over to Nineveh in the territory of Assyria and preach to them. We found out later in the book that God is going to use his message through the prophet Jonah to actually bring salvation to all the Ninevites. God's calling on his people is to share with their words and with their life God's holiness and grace to the whole world. Pretty simple, right? I just want you to notice how straightforward God is being here, okay? For Jonah, there is no vision. 
There is no vision going on here. There is no dream that this call is communicated to him through. Unlike Moses, there is no burning bush. There is no miraculous plagues that comes out of the sky. There's no Hollywood special effects. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's a breakdown in communication that happens between God and Jonah, but it is not because Jonah doesn't know what God's telling him to do. He understands exactly what God is telling him to do. He just don't want to do it. That's, that's what it boils down to. Guys, we don't want to present God's salvation to the lost for the same reasons that Jonah didn't. The Ninevites were his enemy, and they were gruesome enemies. They had done horrible things to his people. And they deserved God's judgment. They in no way deserve God's forgiveness. And he's absolutely right about that. Jonah did not have a comfort problem with God's calling. That's what I'm trying to get across to you, okay? It wasn't like he was shy about sharing the gospel with the lost. It wasn't that he, he was kind of nervous maybe that he might die. I mean, we're going to see. He didn't care if he lives or dies. So he didn't have a comfort problem with God's calling. He had a theological problem with God. His problem wasn't, how could God save the lost? His problem is, how could God be both just and forgive his enemies? And he doesn't understand how those two things can go together. He didn't think that's right. So here's what I've noticed about Christians in general, and myself in particular that we have no problem with the theory of God saving the lost, do we? We say amen. We sing about it. We send other people to go do it. <laughs> we like God saving the lost, the unbelievers. And we have no problem with it as long as they're worthy of being saved. As long as they have historically treated us kindly as long as they have done that, we are okay with God saving them. That makes sense. But as soon as the lost become a real, real people, real individuals that work against me, as soon as they become people that insult me and they offend my way of living and beliefs, then I don't want God to forgive them. I know I'm supposed to but I don't really want that. I want God to stomp them with the boot of justice. That's what I want. I'm just being real with you guys. And you may have felt that way yourself. So I gotta ask you this question because Jonah's asking this question. Who do you put in that category of enemy? I mean, for you. I can't answer that for you. I know for me. But who do you put in that category of Ninevites? They're, they're enemies. They're working against me. In other words, who's that person that, that, that you think they don't deserve God's grace. For you, that may be a particular uh, activist community. For you, it may be something different. It may be a particular religion and their beliefs that they hold. Maybe it's not a group at all for you. Maybe for you, it's a person. It's an individual. It's someone at your job, and they are making your work painful. Like your work is actually harder because of the effort they're using against you. Maybe for you, it's someone in your own family. Maybe it's that neighbor. that They just don't like you. They just resent that you moved into the neighborhood. 
and they're making you living there difficult. God intends to show his grace and forgiveness to them through you. That is our calling from God. And it is clear. God doesn't have a stutter. Now, how do we typically respond to that calling? We're in church. We should probably not lie, right? We should probably tell the truth, <laughs> right? How do we typically respond to that calling? Right here. We protest God's grace to the lost. We protest God's grace to the lost. God tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah arises and flees in the exact opposite direction, direction in Tarshish. I mean, that's what he does. I mean, he didn't even kind of go like a little like this. I'm close. Other way. He's making a statement that's not an accident. Now, when Jonah uh, runs down to Joppa and he hops about, he's not merely disobeying God's instructions. He's absolutely disobeying. But that's not only what he's doing, and we can get caught on the behavior. We can get caught on just that part of it and miss what's really going on. He's protesting God. He is standing on a principle. He's doing this on principle. This is his version of dumping tea into the Boston Harbor. He is arguing with God. Just like the people of God have done, get this, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Abraham did it. Moses did it. Job pelted God with questions, and then God pelted Job with questions. Habakkuk did it. They, Joseph, Jacob, remember he wrestled with God himself. Jonah is saying, not so much with his words yet, he will later, but with his actions, he's saying, I hear you, and I disagree, God. I hear you, and I ain't going. I think you're wrong. You should not be showing grace to my enemies. He's not merely disobeying a command. You get this? He is protesting a characteristic of God. It's a theological problem he has with God. And guys, we do the same thing, do we not? We do. In fact, there's a couple of ways that, that here in the text it shows us that we protest God's grace to the lost. First of all, we view the lost with indifference. Look right here with me, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled, I love that. This is just, this first chapter, it's like something out of a comic book. It's just action. There's stuff flying through the sky and on the seas. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest. That's a hurricane. There's a tempest on the sea, so that the, the ship threatened to break to pieces. Then the mariners, that's not the Seattle mariners, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. A lot of worship is going on all of a sudden. Are you in the story? You feel the salt on your face. They hurled, there's a hurl again, they hurled cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But, but, Jonah, so they're upstairs, and they're doing this, to so do everything they can to save them. You got the picture? But Jonah is gone down into the inner part of the ship. He is laid down and was 
fast asleep. He's down and asleep. So the captain came down and he said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God uses a powerful storm to hit, causes a powerful storm to hit the ship that Jonah's on. And all the sailors, they're shooting off these prayers to every God they can think of in hopes they might hit the God that they kind of, you know, annoyed and appease them. And then they'll be saved so that they won't die. Meanwhile, Jonah is in a deep sleep. Notice in this first chapter, the word down is a lot. He's gone down to Joppa. He's gone down to the boat. He's gone down into the innermost belly of the boat. And now he's gone down into a deep sleep. And he's eventually going to go down into the sea and down into the belly of a fish. He's getting far away from anything that reminds him of his calling. He's not trying to get away from the presence of God that says, like, he knows God's everywhere. He's trying to get away from whatever reminds him of that. So I'm going to hop a ship full of pagan unbelievers and go into a dark place. They're upstairs trying to save lives, and he's not praying for them, this prophet. He isn't doing anything to help. Jonah doesn't care if these unbelievers live or die. He doesn't care if he lives or dies. He's willing to die on principle. He's, he's, a, he's basically buried his head in the sand to all that's going on around him. That's what he's doing. It's not that he's trying to get away from God. He just, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand. Don't remind me of what I'm supposed to do. And the captain has to come and wake him up to get him to do his job as a prophet. Isn't that amazing? The unbeliever comes to the believer in God and says, Be a prophet. Do your job. In fact, the verbs are the same that God uses. He says, arise and call out, which is exactly what God said, right? In verse 2, arise and call out. Isn't that interesting? He says, don't you care if we die, O believer of God? And Jonah's answer is, nope, not really. I know where I'm going. Guys, this is our default attitude to unbelievers around us. We tune out and we hide out. I'm going to tune out of anything that reminds you of them, and I'm going to hide out. And we can hide out in some very Christian religious ways, can't we? We will say that we love God's grace and we're all for reaching the lost, but our actions say that we don't really care if they live or die. Our actions say that. They're experiencing God's storm. They're experiencing, guys, like pieces of their life flying apart, like the ship that Jonah was on. And we're asleep. We're hiding out. Don't remind me. Don't annoy me with that because we don't care. I don't really care. I hope someone talks to them. And here's the kicker. The kicker is that some unbelievers, get this, they're actually very open to hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? This is one thing Jonah is reminding us of. They just don't know what questions to ask. I mean, how are they supposed to ask questions about a God that they don't know? Like the captain, they're very open to hearing about Jonah's God and if this God could possibly save them. Can he save? Is he a God that saves? 
Because I want to talk to the God that saves. Don't waste my time with some other God. Sometimes we buy the lie that all unbelievers are hostile to the gospel. I believe that. I find that rising up with, within me. All of them, are they just don't want to even hear about it. So why bother? Why even bother sharing how great and wonderful he is? Why bother sharing my faith? I'm just going to get kind of chewed out or a sideways little glance. They're not open to that. But it's simply not true. Guess what, guys? Some of them are in a storm like the rest of us. They're in a storm. They, some of them are in a life transition. They just got fired. They just got hired, and they don't know if they can do all the stuff they bragged on their resume that said they could do it. They just lost someone. They just had a baby. That's a life transition. They're not getting any sleep. They're mourning someone. They're open. They got questions. They have run up to the very end of what their experience will teach them, and now they're beyond that. Now they, I don't know. What do I do? Does this make sense? They're actually open to considering, to listening, if we would engage them. Not just drop something off and head out, engage them. Second way that we protest God's grace is that we refuse to disadvantage ourselves for the life of the lost. We refuse to disadvantage ourselves for the benefit of the lost people. Look at here in the text, verses 11 through 13. I'd like to bring something out here. It's interesting. Then they said to him, then they said to him, what then shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, not just the captain, all the sailors are like, oh, you're a prophet of the one true God who made the sea that you're on running away from? Uh, could you tell us about that? What must we do to be saved from your God? They're all very open to hearing about salvation. Now listen to how the prophet responds. He says to them, well, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will, be qu will quiet down for you. And I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not reason. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Only after being under intense pressure and being found out by divination, because they had to cast lots, remember? He wouldn't tell them who he was. Only after that does Jonah tell the sailors how to be saved. They actually, they're like having to pull it out of him. And he's a prophet of God. Jonah really doesn't want God's grace to spill onto any unbelievers here, does he? It's incredible. So finally, after they pull it out of him, here's his answer. He tells them, throw me into the sea, which sounds really magnanimous. It sounds really loving at first blush, but he's telling them to commit murder. Because he doesn't know there's a fish waiting for him. He plans on dying. So, so, so do, you, do you see what's going on? He intends to die on the high seas at the hands of unbelievers on principle that he doesn't agree with what God has told him to do. Remember, he doesn't know God's going to save him 
after he hits the water. So, so, so here's the picture. Here's the context. They, the unbelievers are asking a prophet who knows the one true God how to be saved, it saved, and he tells them to break God's commandment of murder, which will put them squarely under God's judgment and might make him turn out to be a martyr as his last action in this life. Do you see? He, they get disadvantaged he gets advantaged. Are you guys seeing that? You tracking with me? If he really cared about their life, he'd jump in the water. He would have just thrown himself in so that the storm would have calmed down if he really cared about them. He would have put his own life on the line, but he refuses to disadvantage himself for the sake of the lost. And you know the whole irony to this part of the story is that in response, the pagan sailors disadvantage themselves to save Jonah's life. Did you catch that when we read it a second time? They actually try to row him back to dry land. Here's what you need to do. Murder me. Oh, no, we won't do that and let your blood be on our head. We'll try to save you at the cost of our life. This, the unbelievers are acting more like a believer in God than the prophet of God. Come on, guys. Is that touching down on anyone? Is that amazing? Whew. They'll actually die trying to save his life. You see, you see that when we refuse to disadvantage ourselves for the unbelievers, we are protesting God's grace. Listen to me. Look right at me. It will cost you something to take the gospel through your life to unbelievers. Like, I know no one wants to tell you that, so I'm going to tell you that. It'll cost you something, okay? I don't know what it's going to cost each and every individual person. I don't know that. But it'll, it'll cost you some money. It takes money to go. It takes money. It takes sacrifice. You know what? It'll cost you time. If your, parent, your parents, you're raising unbelievers, it'll take you time. It'll take you effort. They won't come to your door asking you, how might I be saved? It'll take you a little effort. It'll cost you that. Guess what? It might cost you your reputation among other Christians to go to the law. Some folks will see you spending time with unbelievers on their turf instead of saying, no, just come over to my turf. And they'll misunderstand that. They'll start looking down your noses, their noses at you. They will. They'll accuse you of affirming their beliefs or affirming their lifestyle or their worldview. They will. They'll accuse you of being part of the world. You might lose respect in their eyes. They might even gossip about you. And you know what? That is just too high a price for some of us to pay that someone else might find life and experience the love of God. We just don't want to put ourselves in trouble so that someone else might get out of trouble. 
So what do we do with this? All right, everyone go home. That's it. No. What do we do with this? How do we live into the calling God has given us when, when it's so clear in the scripture that we naturally protest that? We, we, we buck against that. What's the way through this situation? But we need to see something. We need to see that God pursues us, though we protest. We need to see who our God is. This is what is so amazing about our God, brothers and sisters. This is what we love about him. And it puts him in a category with no one else in it. This is why we sing, you're the one true God. When we protest him, God pursues us. He goes after us. That is amazing. Our God does not demand unquestioning loyalty like an insecure dictator. God does not destroy us when we dare to say, I think what you're doing is wrong, God. I don't like it. He could, and he doesn't. Now, what God is like that? God sees us pulling away from him, and get this, he enters into a back-and-forth dialogue with us, his children. He comes down into that with us. Like a father restraining his mighty power towards his red-faced child that's just swinging blows at him. He restrains himself. God gets down on our level. He puts one hand behind his back, and he enters into a wrestling match with us. All right. I'll go along with you, son. Why does he do that? It's not about winning and losing. God wins. So why does he bother doing that? It's not because of God. It's because it benefits us. He enters into that with us. He pursues us with his grace. Why? So that we will actually know him better. We won't just know his will. We'll know his heart. And our lives will be changed. You see, to protest God's grace, to save the lost, is to protest the very grace that saved us. It's kicking our own props out from under us, and we don't even realize it. We don't know it. To refuse to be a channel of his grace to others is to refuse at our own peril, to our own detriment. But we don't realize the peril that we're in until the storm of God's discipline shows us. It puts it on display for us to see. The scripture says that God disciplines those that he loves and calls legitimate children. This is very interesting. Look at Hebrews 12, 6 through 7. Hebrews says, for the Lord disciplines the one that he hates. Is that what it says? What's your version say? Oh, oh, he disciplines the one he loves. That's what the word of God says. He chastises every son whom he rejects. No. Receives. His discipline is not a sign of his rejection. It's a sign of his reception. It is for discipline that you must endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. When we're at a point as a church or we're at a point as an individual believer where we are comfortable receiving God's grace, but we refuse to share God's grace with the lost, even our enemies, when we refuse to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the lost, it tells us that something has terribly gone wrong in us. 
It tells us that we have lost touch with who we are. It tells us that we have totally forgotten at that moment that we're a child of God. And it lets us know that we have lost touch with the fact that we are only a child of God by God's gracious act towards us. It had nothing to do with our morality. It had nothing to do with our deservedness. We didn't get fair. We got grace. And what has happened is we have slowly started thinking that God loves us. He loved us once upon a time. And that he continues to love us by how moral we are and obedient to his commandments that we are. Now, yeah, God does want that for us, but that's not the why. And guys, let me tell you something. Listen. That is a perilous situation for a believer to be in. Because that is not a God that we are having a relationship with anymore. That is a God that we work for to procure blessings. That is an employee-employer relationship. So I do things for you, God, and make you happy, and then you better pay up. And you better give me what I'm due. That, that kind of thinking is so toxic to a believer's soul that God in his severe mercy sends storms of discipline to remind us that we, guess what? We still need to be saved. We still need his saving grace. Turns out we still need Jesus right now. God says in his discipline that he sends, listen, I am going to remove my blessings for a time to remind you that you were always saved by my grace. And get this, you are sustained even now by the breath that is filling your lungs by my grace. It's always been that way, and it's that way right now. Your obedience never put me in your debt. And so I am protecting you from thinking that way, child. I'm protecting you from buying that kind of thinking, loved one. This is how kind God is. When we protest, God does not let us go on to our own destruction. He could. He could. But he doesn't. He pursues us with correction so that we might have an even deeper relationship with him, that we might actually know his heart, and we, through the encounter, might be changed. We need that encounter with God. But I know you're probably asking, but how do I know that? How can I trust that God is disciplining us because he cares for us, not because he's not, he's not punishing us because he hates us? How do I know that? Like, how do I know that his discipline is a sign of love? Because it doesn't feel like love. I mean, my dad used to discipline. He said, it's because I love you. I say, Dad, just don't love me so much. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to keep loving you. So how do I know? What's our evidence? Don't give me feelings. Give me something tangible. That's what we're thinking, right? It's because of who Jonah points us to. That's how we know. And Jonah points us to Jesus. Unlike Jonah, who is unwilling to jump into the storm for the sake of the lost, Jesus willingly jumps into the storm 
of God's judgment at the cross so that you and I will not encounter it. You and I who are at one time not believing against him would not experience that. And that would not have to come down on us. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 40. This is beautiful, guys. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41. For the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they, that's the Ninevites, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is right here. Jesus is greater than Jonah. In fact, you can't understand the book of Jonah without seeing Jesus in it. That's how you interpret Jonah. It's about Jesus. Jesus is greater than him. Jonah stayed underground in the dark belly of that fish for three days so that he might live, that he might be saved. And that's how God rescued him, right? Jesus stayed three days in the grave so that we all might be saved. Jesus was absorbing the tempest hurricane of God's punishment for our sins. Jesus disadvantaged himself so that, guess what? You and I could benefit and benefit forever and ever. Amen. He had his reputation smeared for years by holy people, even though he was the most holy person. Why? So that you could be called holy, who were not holy. Who does that? They called him crazy. Maybe he was a little crazy, but he was in his right mind. He was called demon-possessed when he was actually full of God's spirit. Why? So that you and I might be filled with God's spirit. Do you see? Do you see yet? Do you see how he loves you? Are you picturing it? He loves you. He traveled through that hurricane of God's wrath for you because he loves you. He suffered all of that because he loves you. Jesus chose not to protest God's grace towards us even though it would cost him dearly. But instead, he chose to pursue us with his grace. Jesus is the ultimate example of God pursuing us with his grace. The storm fell on him. That's the good news of Jesus. Amen. And, and the more we believe that by faith, the more we grab hold of that gospel, that's what empowers us to share the good news with the lost. I love you guys. Let's pray. Holy, gracious King Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for pursuing us when we would run away from you, when we shake our fist at you and say, I don't like it. You said, okay.
let's do this. I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you run off. I'm coming to get you. Lord, I pray that your gospel would seep into every fiber of our being and every fold and crevice of our soul today, that you would change Crossway. You would just start with me. Just change me. I need to be changed. I, 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 God, I need to be different. I don't love people the way you love them. And I'm sorry. I'm a grace hoarder. So change me. Change us. Help the gospel get out of this church and get to people that are in trouble and they need it, even if it gets us in trouble. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness when we are faithless. There is no God like you. There's not even a close second. <laughs> and we worship you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.